First one, chapter one, the book of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The books of Chronicles and Ezra are companion writings. They, I believe, were written, and I think there's a lot of good evidence for this, were written by Ezra the scribe. He laid it all down, and it's a before and after view of Israel. So we have the what's called the pre-exilic view, before the exile, which is First and Second Chronicles. From the rule of, of the line of Judah all the way through, the pre-exilic book of Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, and then Ezra is post-exilic. Pre-exilic, post-exilic, before Chronicles, after Ezra. And, as you know, there's the 70-year exile in between. So you've got Chronicles, 70 years, and then Ezra. But as we open up the book of Ezra, we now enter a new era. It is a new phase in the life of Israel. The Lord will only be speaking to Israel now for about 100 years, maybe 150 years. After the exiles come back, there are several prophets, but it, it, it begins to quiet down. And then you Bible students know, we come to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, and for 400 years, God is silent. He doesn't speak to the people. He still does some marvelous things, but He's quiet. And so John the Baptist comes, and the voice cries out in the wilderness, and then Jesus comes, and then we enter the new era, the newest era, the era that we're in, the dispensation or the season of grace that is so wonderful. Well, the exile's over, and the, book, and the people of, of Israel are now coming home. I want you to, to recognize a few things here at the beginning. There are seven books in the Hebrew Scriptures that deal with this. Seven books that are intimately linked to the special work of God in these days. Three of the books are historical. And three of the books are prophetical. And one book is both, historic and prophetic. The historic books are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We're going to cover all three of these, probably be done before Christmas. That's, that's my plan anyway. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, historic books that all are happening in the days of, at the end of the exile, and the exile is coming back. Ezra and Nehemiah detailing the return. Esther happens at the time that the exiles have already begun to return to the land. And, you know, Esther has her situation in Persia, and we're going to get to that later on. Those are the three historic books. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. The prophetic books that are tied into this season. Haggai, which is actually Haggai, if you want to say it correctly in the Hebrew, it's Haggai. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Or if you're Italian, uh, Malachi. Okay. So those three are the prophetic books. Historic, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Prophetic, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, Malachi. And then we've got the historic and prophetic book. It's both. And that's the book of Daniel. Now again, before we get on into Ezra, a couple more things are worth noting. Number one. There is a curious similarity in the ninth chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel. The ninth chapter of all three of those books are curiously similar in that there is the influence of the word which leads to the imperative of repentance. 
Either a man or a people will be suddenly influenced by the Word of God and they will find themselves driven to their knees in confession and repentance. A man or the people are in the Word and being in the Word they are moved and motivated to repentance and confession. Now I point that out. In fact, turn over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I point this out because the story here of Ezra that, that Ezra details for us of the exile's return doesn't begin with Ezra. It actually begins with Daniel. It actually starts a little bit earlier than chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. It starts in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. For Daniel is not only historic and prophetic, it is exilic. It's exilic. In other words, it's not pre-exilic like Chronicles was. It's not post-exilic like Ezra and Nehemiah Esther. It's exilic. It's the only book in the Bible that details something happening in Babylon during the exile. Because that's where Daniel is. Remember, as a young man, Daniel, 17 years old, is going to be taken into exile, into captivity in Babylon. And he will live his life out there. He will never return to Israel. He'll spend the 70 years there, so everything that happens to Daniel is a picture of what's going on to the people there in Babylon. So he's there during the exile, and we're told in verse 1 of chapter 9, and Daniel is an old man at this point, it says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. So in the first year of this Darius. Now you might say, okay, wait, wait a minute. I thought Cyrus was king. There's Darius here in Daniel 9, but over in Ezra chapter 1, we read Cyrus the Persian. This is Darius the Mean. It says here that he's the king. Is there a contradiction? Not at all. In fact, historically, what we believe was going on there, Cyrus was king over all of Persia, which encompassed Babylon. It encompassed, because remember, Persia conquered Babylonia, conquered Chaldea. And in that conquering, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, they, they functioned together in this. Well, what appears to have happened is Darius then is left as the king over Babylonia, that area, where, whereas Cyrus is king over all of Persia. Okay? And that's what we're dealing with there in verse 1. Now, there is some historical debate. In fact, some people have even come out and said that Cyrus and Darius are the same person. It doesn't line up biblically. And it doesn't really line up historically as well. So I think what we're seeing here is Cyrus king over the whole kit and caboodle and uh, Darius just king over maybe the caboodle. Okay? Alright, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So here's Daniel. He's been in exile. He's lived his whole life in exile, but he has never forgotten This young man, in fact, Daniel is one of these guys in the Scripture with the exception of Jesus. He's the only one in the entire Bible you never see him sin. Doesn't mean he didn't. Doesn't mean he wasn't capable of it. But he is one of the most faithful men in all of Scripture. And this Daniel is reading, he's studying Jeremiah. And he is influenced by the Word. And he realizes as he's studying it that there were only about four years left. He's 66 years roughly into the exile. There's about four years left for it to all be over. And he says, oh, we have four years to get ready because it's, it's going home time now. He's reading Jeremiah, probably chapter 29, although there were no chapters. He just had the scroll open. 
But Jeremiah 29, verse 10, Thus says the Lord, when the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And that verse is often co-opted by Christians, and rightly so, that He has a hope and a future for us. Well, it was an original promise to Israel. In captivity with four years left to go. So what was the result of this revelation as Daniel's reading through Jeremiah? I think that's so cool. Daniel the prophet is reading Jeremiah the prophet. <laughs> Both books are in the, in the Old Testament for us to read. The result is the influence of the Word led to the imperative of repentance. Verse 3 tells us, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel gets on his knees. And for the rest of chapter 9, begins to repent. Not just for his people, but for himself as well. He takes ownership of the sin of all of his people. He owns it. I think we have a responsibility to own the sins of America. I really do. I think we, when we cry out for America, we don't say, Lord, save that country of which I'm so glad. I'm really not a part. I belong to you and and I'm not the sinner like this. No, save our country, Lord. I repent, Father, for the sins of my fathers. I repent for the things I don't even know that my fathers have done in the last 200, 250 years here in this country. That's what Daniel did. He repented for all of his people. He took ownership for it. He's motivated by the Word and he's moved then to repentance. And that's the way it tends to work. Another plug here for being in the Word of God is he he moves us and motivates us by his Word to repent and confess. Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Peter is preaching that great opening day sermon of the church and he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it says, When they heard this, when they heard the word as as Peter preached it, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The motivation of the Word leads to repentance. We see in Romans chapter 10 verse uh, 17 that Paul says faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ, the whole thing comes back to having heard the truth. And the truth implanted begins to change and alter us. John 8, 47. Jesus says, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. Why is it that people reject the Bible? Because they're not of God. Because at least at this point in their lives, the heart is hard to the truth. And when the heart is closed off to the Lord, you're not going to hear it. It takes an opening of the heart. The Word opens the heart. In fact, the Word works somewhat like a chisel at times, cracking the heart open and breaking off those tough places. Revelation chapter 3 Verse 22, and actually several times throughout the three uh, the, the letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Daniel has heard this. Meanwhile, back in Ezra, Cyrus hears the word. He hears the word of the Lord. The Lord stirs up his heart, as we're told in verse 1, not only to send the Jewish people back to their land, that's great enough, but to rebuild the temple. Cyrus even says, man, it's me. And you may recall a couple Sundays ago when we talked about this, it's very likely his story, uh, Josephus tells us, Cyrus saw the prophecy. Someone showed him the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. 
And Isaiah 45, verse 1, where Cyrus is named by God 150 years before his birth. And so he's shown that prophecy, and rather than reject it, he sees the word, he hears the word, and he responds to the word. It stirs him up. He said, well, if I mention a prophecy, we best make this thing come true. Which doesn't you know, deny the value of the prophecy. Cyrus did exactly what God said he was going to do. Stirs up his heart, sends the people back to the land to rebuild the temple. But take special note of this. This is critical and it's applicable to our times. Cyrus is king of what? What is Cyrus king of? What land? Persia. Cyrus is king of Persia. Why is that applicable today? You all know this. What is Persia? Iran. Persia plays a crucial role in the next three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, as we'll be studying. Persia plays a crucial, crucial role both now and, and in the last days, both in the passages we're studying and in Ezra and in the days in which we live right now as well. Persia is still on the world stage. Absolutely amazing. In 1935, Persia asked the world community to, change, to, to honor its change of name. They chose to change their name to Iran. Why Iran? It's from Aryan. Aryan, as in the super race of Hitler and the Nazis. And Persia at that time was so tied into Hitler and the Nazis that they changed their name to say, we're the Aryan nation. Iran, Aryan. Amazing, because it wasn't until 1979 that it became officially the Islamic Republic of Iran. Persia is not Arabic. Did you know that? These are not Arabs. It is strongly Shia Muslim now, but that's not what it's always been. And Persia, the, the Iranian people, are not, for the most part, Arabic. That changed with the whole Islamic revolution. A great book that I encourage you to pick up and read. It's a thick one, but if you want to learn the whole history, it's Joel Rosenberg's newest book. And it's called... Uh, Inside the Revolution. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, Inside the Revolution. And it goes back to 79 and actually back before that and draws through and shows how this whole Muslim revolution has taken place, how it's affected the whole world and the impact of it going on right there in Iran. Well, just last week, you all, if you're watching the news, you know that Iran admitted to having a second nuclear facility. Well, they admitted it after they were caught. But they have a second nuclear facility located in the place called Qom. Qom is ironically the most religious place, Muslim-wise, in all of Iran. Which is why they built it there. Because if that is attacked, then it's like taking a stab at part of the heart of Islam. And Iran, the Iranian government is thinking, you know, that's a great place to put it because we put it there. And if Israel attacks it, well now we can gather the entire Muslim Brotherhood together and go after Israel. These are the people who, who uh, they, they didn't actually originate chess, but they perfected it. The Iranians, the Persians. That's where the, the chess and the whole idea of the checkmate came out of Persia. The game originated back before. I tell you that because they're playing chess right now. It's exactly what they're doing. Let me give you some intel. This is right out of the, actually, <laughs> this beat the headlines today. These are some things you won't even hear in the news until maybe tomorrow or the next day. Unless you watch Bill O'Reilly, you heard part of this, but he got it from the same place I did. During the presidential campaign this last year, 
You might recall that our, at that time, vice presidential candidate, uh, Joe Biden, announced that if elected, the Obama administration was going to face a serious foreign policy challenge. Do you remember when he said that? And people kind of said, what? you know something? Is there something you're not telling us? Well, there was. In fact, I think it's something that he knew when he said that because the Bush administration knew about this and that was the second nuclear reactor in Guam. This has been known for a long time, gang. Obama, and the news did share this, he stood up and, and gave this announcement to make the maximum impact. He did this, you know, at the United Nations this last week and, and was trying to make an impact on the world stage. It's been known for a long time. Israel has known it even longer. Interesting, this test that Biden was talking about has come and the test is called Iran. We've had intelligence on this nuclear site, as I said, for some time. Obama has favored diplomacy. Now, listen, this is, I'm not getting political here. I'm just laying out some truth here for you, okay? So don't worry, I'm not playing games. He's known about this, and so he's favored diplomacy. He wants talks. And the talks are supposed to start tomorrow, October 1st, in uh, Geneva. His talks are supposed to begin with Iran, who is playing chess right now. He issued a very stern warning last week of serious consequences for Iran if they refuse to come to the table. Now, what's interesting is I have it on good authority that Iran's foreign minister came to Washington, D.C. today. He showed up in D.C. Now, he's not meeting with the Obama administration. can't do that because we, we haven't had uh, good open communication and dialogue directly with Iran since 1980. It's been closed off. But their foreign minister shows up in D.C. today. Interesting. What's he doing there? Is he meeting with... Are they having pre-level talks? Possibly. Probably not. (laughs) But there are some behind-the-scenes politics that's in play. All of that to say this, and we're still talking about Persian, and trust me, we're going to come back to Ezra in just a moment. But as of today, there are three options for our president. There are three things that Obama has to weigh dealing with Iran, and this is serious business, gang. Number one, Obama can impose crippling sanctions. This is what he wants to do. But it will only work if Russia and China agree. And they don't want to. In fact, just this morning, Russia came out saying that Iran's current short and long-term missile testing that they did, remember Ron Ross talked about this Sunday morning, on Yom Kippur, they're firing off missiles in Iran. You don't think that was timed? They're saying something here. Uh, Russia came out today and they said these missile tests don't impose any significant concern and certainly are not worthy of sanctions. This is out of the mouth of Mother Russia. Both China and Russia oppose sanctions and without them on board, sanctions will be toothless. Oh, we can do it. The United States can say, we're imposing sanctions, but as far as oil and and food and, and product and everything that needs to be imported into Iran, Russia, China, and the surrounding nations will take care of them just fine. Well, that's one option. He can try to impose crippling sanctions, and if Russia and China get on board, it it could do something. But it's not likely that they're going to get on board. Secondly, Obama can join Israel in taking strong military action. That the United States and Israel together could strike the nuclear reactors, both of them in Iran. And by the way, if you strike the nuclear reactors, you've got to strike the airfields. You have to take out Iran's ability to counterattack. We could do that. Here's the thing that is interesting to me. Even if Obama chooses not to do that and Israel strikes on its own, we're going to be drawn into it. 
will have no choice. We will have to be involved. For one thing, because Iran will immediately try to close off the Straits of Hormuz. And uh, our boys are out there. And there will be some tensions out there. Think about this. If Israel attacks Iran, which it sounds like it's very likely that it could happen before December, what do you think is going to happen to the world oil market? Oil will shoot to probably, it's likely, estimates of $300 a barrel. Back when we were paying $4 a gallon, it was 130 a barrel. Can you imagine $12 a gallon gasoline to get around? Now that freaks me out just because I can't even imagine how much, you know, the amount of money I'm spending on gas right now just to get my kids to the high school or the junior high and back is just freaking me out. And I don't say that to scare you, but gang, the impact not only on oil but on world markets if Israel attacks, which they likely will, could be devastating to an economy, a world economy and the U.S. economy that's just trying to scrape its way back out of a deep recession. Third thing Obama can do. First, he could impose sanctions. Second, he can join Israel, take military action. Number three, he can do nothing. Sanctions without Russia and China is the same thing. So number one and number three are the same thing. You can impose sanctions, which is the same as doing nothing. Some in Washington actually see a nuclear Iran as an acceptable risk. That's, that phrase has been used. It's an acceptable risk. The Israelis don't see a nuclear Iran as acceptable in the least. If we do nothing, Israel will still trigger the second scenario, will still be drawn in, and Obama will come off looking weak and waffling. And was it just this week that uh, Sarkozy from France, France, actually, France actually called our president weak? That is the situation that we're in. We are at a, in a time right now, gang, where we are on the razor's edge of, of some very dangerous things about to take place. Pastor, I came here for a Bible study. Why are we going political and military and all that? Well, let me answer the question because Iran is Persia. Let's go a little further than that. Again, it's not historically Arabic or Muslim. It's Persian. The people of Iran are, are a Persian people. Listen and note this carefully. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the prophet Daniel received a message so absolutely terrifying it landed him on his couch, sick to his soul for three weeks. For three weeks all Daniel could do was lie there and writhe in fear and pain and agony and fast and mourn. He didn't shower. He didn't anoint himself with oil. He did nothing. He just prayed and begged God for an answer. And at the end of three weeks, now remember Daniel chapter 9 that we just read? He begins to pray. By the end of the chapter, Gabriel shows up. It takes three minutes to pray that prayer in Hebrew. Now it's three weeks Daniel has prayed and he's just waiting for an answer. Watch this. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I now have been sent to you. It's Gabriel again. He's back. (laughs) And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For from from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Now you might say, Well, Gabriel, why did you take so long? 
Why leave Daniel in this distress? Because, verse 13, it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came, with, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. What is Gabriel, the angel, talking about? He's saying, I tried to get through to you. But the prince of Persia, apparently this demonic principality was so strong and so powerful, I could not break through. In fact, I was captured by him, and I had to cry out to Michael the archangel, who then came along and fought with me. And side by side, Michael and Gabriel were able to break through this principality so that Gabriel could get the message to Daniel. Wild stuff. Incredible. And it's true. Why am I telling you this, gang? The prince of Persia was a powerful demonic presence, a principality. And it took both of these angels to blast past him so that they could get to Daniel. When they do, by the way, and I won't go into this, but the rest of chapter 10, 11, and 12 is is the most complete, amazing end-time scenario possibly in the entire Scripture. When we do eventually get to Daniel and study it, it will blow you away as to how precise the whole picture is laid out before us of what's going to happen in the tribulation in the very end of the end times. And this message needed to get through. The bottom line is, gang, the prince of Persia was there and stopped it. Side note, when you're praying and praying and praying and it seems like there's no answer, there may be something more than God just being silent. It may be possible that what you're praying and what God wants to bring to you is so important that there is battling going on in the spiritual realm that is detaining that message. But it will come, so you keep praying. You stay on your couch and you keep lifting up the name of Jesus and you keep waiting and God will bring answer. That's the side note. Here's what I want you to hear. Satan is no respecter of religions. He will use whatever he needs to. Whether it's polytheism or paganism idolatry, Islam, he will use anything he needs to. And I cannot help but wonder if the same demonic principality, that prince of Persia, is still assigned to the region. And is today influencing the likes of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. What's happening with the Rand gang is not politics. It is a spiritual battle. And I think we need to be alert to that and aware of that as you watch things unfold. By the way, there should be some great encouragement with that too because if it's a spiritual battle, guess who's involved? Our Lord is. Now here's the good news. Back in Ezra, we're reminded that the Lord is God who accomplishes His will despite all rulers and principalities. This marvelous turn of events. He moves His Spirit. He stirs up Cyrus, king of Persia. At a time where he shouldn't have been stirred up, but God can do it. So Cyrus Cyrus issues that decree. That's hard to say. Cyrus issues. Try saying that three times real fast. Go ahead. No, kidding. Verse 3. So now at this point, he says, Cyrus, in, in this edict, he says, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus is not speaking from faith. Cyrus is a pagan. Cyrus believed in many gods. We know this historically. In fact, what Cyrus would do in sending the people back, part of his design was he wanted them to pray to their God for him. 
Because he believed in a multiplicity of gods, and so he would conquer people, and then he would let them keep their god, and just say, hey, I want you guys to pray for me. So now I've got more gods on my side. This is the mentality of the man. He's a polytheist. And so he refers to this God who is in Jerusalem, but what was the more Jewish name for God at the time? Do you remember what the Jewish people were calling him? We talked about this a week ago Sunday. It's a name that's used nine times in the book of Ezra. It's almost exclusive to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's God of heaven. God of heaven. Not God of Jerusalem. Cyrus calls him that because he thinks that gods are are limited to a, a, a carving or an idol. But God of heaven. Indicating, gang, God's power and his absence at this point from Jerusalem, drawing back. As the first temple was destroyed, pulling his glory. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. The Lord said, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's what we see Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 9. In the exile, in captivity, he is praying earnestly, God, God, forgive us. We repent of this sin of the nation. And God hears Daniel calling him a man highly esteemed. He begins to move as they earnestly seek him. You know, just because a person rejects the Lord doesn't mean he no longer rules. Just because evil happens doesn't mean God is not still working out His perfect will. Whether the evil is global, like a nuclear threat from a nuclear Iran, or personal, like illness, or family crisis, or suicide, or some kind of intimate pain, You need to remember this. He is God of heaven. Please don't underestimate the the importance of this. He is over and above all things, over all time, all space, all dimension, all power. He is God of heaven. He is the overarching power. Now, you might say, well, Rick, when you talk about Him as God of heaven, He sounds so distant. Well, let me be clear then. Romans 8.38 says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God of heaven is greater than all those things, and nothing can separate us, as overarching and great as He is, nothing can separate us from the intimate love that He has for each of us personally. That is absolutely astounding. That the God of heaven is in my heart tonight. And is in you tonight. When I think about Him as God of heaven, it kind of, emboldens me a bit. It gives me some courage. And I think, yeah, God of heaven, the God of heaven loves me, so do what you want with me physically. Malign me, man, mock my church, throw the worst disease or illness at me, whatever you want, Satan, take your best shot. My God is God of heaven. My God rules over all. Ahmadinejad, whatever. My God is God. Gas prices soaring, my God is God. He's God of heaven, and He is greater than all these things. And Jesus said, you've heard me quote this verse many times, Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Because He is God in heaven, and He is over all. Verse 4. 
Every survivor, this edict continues now. Cyrus says, every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, (laughs) with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold and goods and cattle with valuables aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus. He brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridat, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number. Thirty gold dishes, a thousand silver dishes, twenty-nine duplicates. Thirty gold bowls, four hundred and ten silver bowls of the second kind, and a thousand other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered five thousand four hundred. Shezbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Does does that remind you of another exodus? Isn't it interesting that where God guides, God provides? You've heard that, I'm sure, that phrase before. Where God guides, God provides. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. As the Lord led the people out of the land there of Egypt, it says, The sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Same thing now is happening. As they exit Babylon, the people around them, not just Jews, mind you, but Babylonians, begin to give them silver and gold and goods and cattle and whatever you need. Oh, you need something? Yeah, come on, I'll give it to you. Have a safe journey. See you later. Blessings. And they send them out. And and, and in a way, the, the children of Israel, having done nothing to earn this themselves, have favor and grace and blessing. They're gifted on the way out. Let me say say it this way. No matter how uncertain things may seem in the world, gas prices shot up to 12 bucks a gallon. Gang, we've got to trust that the Lord will provide. God will provide for His people. He always has. He always has. There are times when His people feel like they're on the brink, but God always provides, always comes through. We see it time and again throughout the Scripture. God looks after the needs of His children. Now it may not be grandiose. may not be riches and splendor. He may not meet your wants, but He will meet your needs. Matthew 6.33, He just tells us what to do. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But that doesn't mean, though He will provide for us, it doesn't mean we won't go through days of distress. The exiles would go through quite a bit of distress. they come back to the land and they would build. Nehemiah will tell us later, with a hammer or, or a, a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. Because even as they were building in times of distress, Daniel prophesied, and in difficulty, they were there, God was providing, but they were still... In distress, gang, again, if Israel attacks Iran before Christmas, we could be financially in great trouble as a nation, as a people. We could each personally, individually, try and be figuring out how are we going to possibly 
pay for what we have to. How are we going to cover these bills? What are we going to do? Oh no, the economy is going right back into the drain. Would you remember that God provides for His people? Don't despair. God is faithful. God is faithful. David Wilkerson. He's the man who wrote the book The Cross and the Switchblade. Maybe you've heard about it. He went to New York City. And he began there in New York City to uh, go after the street kids and the gangs. And that's what the book is about. He formed Teen Challenge. He uh, planted the uh, Times Square Church, a huge church there in New York City. He's been in ministry now for 50 years. man of great integrity. He wrote in March 2009, An earth-shattering calamity is about to happen. It is going to be so frightening, we are all going to tremble, even the godliest among us. On his blog site, just last month, he wrote the following, Christians all over the world have a sense we're living in the final days. I mean, don't you? He's, he's right. He's right. There's a sense among us as believers now that we have not had. That this is, man, this is, we are close. He says, the mounting crises, the growing fears, the signs of great shaking. All these things are evident even to the secular commentators. Now for every follower of Jesus, the question of the hour is this. Will my faith endure? That's the question I ask you tonight. Will your faith endure what is coming? Now I've had people say, and I've thought from time to time myself, well, but won't we be raptured before it gets really bad? That's what I'm waiting for. You know? Almost every night at bedtime, my head hits the pillow and I go, and I want to be awake, so if you're going to call, can you... Okay, I'm going to go to sleep now. Are we going? Is now the time? Because I can't imagine that the church is going to go through the kind of pain and distress that could come upon the world simply by a war between Israel and Iran. And yet, did the church of the first century not go through incredible persecution and distress? Oh, the rapture's coming. And we will be pulled out before God's wrath is poured out on this Christ-rejecting sinful world. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 guarantees that Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But understand the context of Paul saying that. In verse 8, right before that, he says we need to live our lives in all sobriety, all soberness, with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Why would you say that, Paul? Because times are going to get dark. It's going to get hard. The tribulation will far surpass anything that's ever happened on planet Earth. But leading up to that, it is going to get hard. I don't know how hard. We could go tonight, and that's it. Praise God, I hope. That's my hope, my element of salvation, the hope right there, that we go tonight. We don't have to deal with any of this. But we may. We may yet deal with it. We will need an enduring faith. We will need to get out of the the mentality... Well, let me put it this way. Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. What does that mean? Endure. Hang in there. Be strong in your faith. And you won't go through the tribulation. I'll keep you out of the hour of testing. But you're going to have to endure leading up to it. He says that hour is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly, so hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Two things then are and will be needed in the coming shakedown of our world. Number one, we've got to trust in His provision. 
And He has promised to take care of us. He says, seek the kingdom. That's really, and yes, I believe this. I know it's simple-minded. But all you have to do is seek first the kingdom. If you will seek first the kingdom, He will add what you need. He will take care of the needs. Guarantee it. It may not be what you think, but He will provide. We've got to trust in His provision, and we have to be a people of perseverance. Provision and perseverance are the two things I believe we need most in these days. Provision and perseverance. The closer we get, the more our faith will have to move out of the theoretical realm of a, of a Sunday morning or even a Wednesday night. We're going to have to move out of Bible study and into real life constancy of faith. I've said this before, isn't it easy to believe right now? I mean, it does, don't you feel, as you're in the Word of God, don't you feel your faith swell as the verses are put out in the Word and you're going, yes, yes, I find that, I believe it. And then you go home and bam, the world hits you and you go, oh, I don't know how we're going to make it, man. I don't know how we're going to get through the next couple of days here. We've got to move out of this place and into real life faith. Jesus said in Luke 21:36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying so that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now listen to me. doesn't mean we stop fellowshipping. doesn't mean we shut down the, down the church and say, Okay, from here on out, the Bridge Christian Fellowship is just out in real life. See you in eternity. No, we keep fellowshipping. We pour over the Word of God constantly. We remain gathering together as often as possible in the worship of our God and Father. But we allow this to be less, less theoretical and more practical. We take it and we use it and we live it. And I'm getting a little hot on this right now because, gang, if we don't, we could be bowled over by what's to come. An enduring faith. Well, the people were provided for. People were pumped up. They're ready to go. They're heading back. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. These came with Zerubbabel. I love that name. Yeshua. Nehemiah. Siraiah. Reeliah. Mordecai, Bilshan, Mitzpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bayana. Now, of these names, there are only two that you need to remember. Zerubbabel, who is one of the princes of Judah, in the line of the kings of Judah, is this Zerubbabel. And he will govern Judah when they get back. Not as king. He won't have another king again until, well, Herod's going to try and force his rule over them as King Herod and There will be others who will try and usurp that, but until King Jesus comes. So Zerubbabel, and then the other one is Yeshua. Yeshua there in verse 2 is the high priest. Yeshua. Common name, Joshua the high priest. Now, I want you to note, there are a couple names you might recognize here. Nehemiah. This is not the same Nehemiah of the book. Nehemiah. Because he doesn't come about until about 90 years later. It's not Mordecai. See Mordecai there? That's not the same Mordecai who was in Persia with Esther because that Mordecai and Esther, her story, happens about 60 years after this is happening right here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua, two important names to remember tonight. Zerubbabel, we're going to see him a lot in these first six chapters. Do you remember what his name means, anybody? Zerubbabel. Babel. So Zerubbabel. It means forged in Babylon. 
That's where this man's faith is forged. I like that. He grew up in Babylon. He grew up in distress. He grew up in captivity and hard time. And now that he's ready to go back, he has been forged, prepared for what the Lord has for him. Forged in Babylon. I, I can't. I love the name Zerubbabel. I can't wait for the first little Zerubbabel to be born at the bridge. That'll be great. Now the last part of verse 2 says, The number of the men of the people of Israel, and then it begins to number them. Now, note this. Verse 2 ends by indicating we're getting a list of the number of the men of the people of Israel. Not Judah. Israel. Because God sees them all the same. These are all His people. There were people, not just of tribes of Judah and Benjamin, people of the other tribes who are in captivity as well, who were living in the region of Judah. So now the people of Israel are heading back. And for the next 58 verses... The names are listed family by family of those who left Babylon among the first group of refugees. Skip on down to verse 60. See how quickly we moved? There's just one name after another. We could talk about them. We won't take the time now. Uh, men of Israel, there were priests, there were Levites, there were singers, there were gatekeepers, there were temple servants, there were sons of Solomon's servants, all the way down until we get to through verse 60. And it lists the names and it numbers all those who are headed back. Now, One thing just to note about these 58 or so verses. It's a great registry. It's a great registry. It's filled with names that we will never know or remember. We we won't recall them in future times. You've probably never heard most, if not all, of these names before. But God has, and God will remember. Because this is God's honor roll. These names are listed of the family names. These are the people who had the faith to go back. And so God saw fit to list their names. And I don't think any of them knew He would. When they say, yeah, I'll go, I'll go, rebuild the temple, go back to Judah, I'll go, I'll leave my comfort and my life here in Babylon and go back. And among all those people, God says, that's my people. Add a boy, add a girl, way to go Israel, and he lists out all their names. Isaiah 49.16, the Lord says, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, because God remembers the names of his people. And I'll add that he remembers your name as well. You're on his honor roll. But as we come to verse 61, there's a little problem. It says that the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. Bottom line, they lost their backstage passes. They couldn't find their, their proof of their priestly pedigree. They couldn't prove to anybody because they, they didn't have the papers written down. They didn't have the scrolls that showed these guys were legitimate priests. And because of that, they were not allowed to serve. In fact, verse 63 says, The governor said to them, this would be Zerubbabel, he said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things which the priests and Levites were allowed to, don't eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. So they're denied their place of ministry until the high priest could check with Uma Thurman and find out who knows what's going on here. You know the Urim and Thummim. You know what these things are. Maybe you've heard about them. It had to do with the breastplate of the high priest. 
And on that breastplate there were twelve stones, one stone for each of the tribes of Israel. Somehow, and no one really knows how, but somehow the Urim and the Thummim were a part of that. And when someone needed to find something out or learn something from God or speak to Him, they could go to the high priest and make their request. And the high priest then would go pray to the Father. Urim, Thummim, it means lights and perfections. The lights and the perfections. And some have guessed that possibly those stones would light up. And in the particular way in which they lit up, they would then give God's answer to the high priest and then he could take, take it back to the people. Now there are other things that were people guessed at that maybe it had to do with, maybe there were dice that they stuck down in there and they just rolled the dice. That's not how God works. But lights and perfections, the Urim and the Thummim. And listen, and I think this is marvelous, there's only one person who could attest to the legitimacy of these people as priests. The high priest, Yeshua. The high priest, Yeshua, is the only one who can say, yeah, this man, this woman is part of my royal priesthood, as Peter wrote. Only our high priest, Jesus, can attest to the fact that you are one of his royal priesthood. As we are called to believe, to be as, as believers in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. I like that. You will prove your legitimacy as a priest in the household of God simply by saying, ask Jesus. Ask my high priest. He knows. He will verify for me. Acts chapter 2 verse 44 describes this process. The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. I like this verse, 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows those who are His. That's good news. Revelation 3.5, Jesus said, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase His name from the book of life. That's God's registry. That's God's proof. Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me just ask you tonight, do you know your name's in the book? Is your name in the book? I love seeing you nod because that should be your, your immediate reaction. Is your name in the book of life? Huh? <laughs> and not a nod of fear, but a nod of assurance. Yeah, of course it is. Well, how do you know? You had a particularly good week? No, not particularly. But I have grace. I have the grace of God and I have faith in Jesus Christ and it is that faith that guarantees my name is written in the book. But Peter does write this, 2 Peter 1.10. Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. How can I be sure that my name's in the book? Ask the high priest. Ask the high priest Yeshua. All you need is to be on His heart. On the heart of Jesus and His light and perfection will see to it that your name is written in the book. Verse 64. So it tells us then some numbers. It says the whole assembly numbered 42,360. And beside their male and female servants who numbered 7,337. And they had 200 singing men and women uh, there with them. So the total number here of all the exiles who returned is 49,897 people. Just under 50,000 are going to return. I think it's interesting that it continues on here. Verse 66 and 67 uh, details the number of the animals that went. I don't know why. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Now, I, I looked and looked at that and I thought, okay, is there, is there some kind of a, um, 
Is there an application here, or is it just the number of the animals, you know? I mean, we know with the horses, we know that there are horses in heaven, right? Because we ride the horses with Him. He, he returns riding a white horse. Well, you take that literally, Rick? Well, I, I'm simple enough that, yeah, for now I do. He rides back on a white horse. We come back with Him riding on horses. So we, we can assume horses are involved in the whole heavenly thing. Um, cats are probably in heaven, Right? Because you got to have something to string the harps with. <laughs> I love that joke. I just do. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> I do think there's something significant here. If you list out these these animals and then you apply them to the number of people, here's what you come out with: one donkey for every six people. You get one horse for every 60 people, one camel for every 100 people, and one mule for every 175 people. So what? If you lay it out that way, what it gives us is a picture of a people who are poor. They don't all have their own horse. They don't all have their gaggle of animals to return back with. They don't have their flocks and their herds and and all kinds of riches and wealth to bring. All they have, really, this impoverished group of exiles making their way across a thousand miles back to Israel. All they really have is what God provides them on the way out. They don't have much. This is a listing gang, I believe, to show us how poor the people really were. But watch what happens. Verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and by the way, I love that it's still called the house of the Lord. The temple is destroyed. When they come back to Jerusalem, what they see is nothing but rubble where the temple was. But Ezra's still calling it the house of the Lord. Because that's where God said, I will dwell in the city of Jerusalem. When they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered these, these heads of the fathers, they offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundations. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. And the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Gang, this is wonderful here. These impoverished people who barely had a donkey between, you know, 60 of them, or whatever the numbers were that we just gave, they come back in and the site of the rubble, the site of the destroyed and demolished temple, it didn't cause them to despair, it caused them to be generous. Even giving out of their poverty, 61,000 gold drachmas is over $150 million today that these exiles gave to restart the building of the temple. 5,000 silver miners would be over $1.5 million today. How did these poor exiles give so much? They gave so much because they saw the need. They looked at the temple and said, we got to build and it's going to take everything we've got and we're going to give to this project because it's worth it. They saw the need. Were they discouraged? No. They were motivated. And I think that's a very cool thing in this return. Do you see the need? Do you see what needs to be done? Are you talking about the building over on Troxel, Rick? No, I'm not. Do you see what needs to be done for the kingdom? Do you see the need in the world around you? 
can you give to the need? Well, I don't have much, neither did the exiles. Well, I can't give much, doesn't matter. Look with God's eyes and He will show you the need. And He will show you where He wants you to give to the need. Can I boast on my daughter? She's not here right now. Can I just boast on Hannah for just a minute? She came back from creation two years ago saying, Dad, I signed up for a world vision child. And I just went, Hannah, you realize you're talking 30 bucks a month and you're in high school. I didn't even know what to do with 30 bucks a month. When I, I, I had no idea how much that was. But I was lucky if I had 10 bucks a month when I was in high school. And my fleshly fatherness responded negatively. And Annie said, well, Dad, I saw his picture and I couldn't help it. She saw the need. She wasn't even working at the time. And all I could think of was, I know she's going to be coming to me next month going, Dad, can I borrow 30 bucks? You know. Hannah saw the need. She's never missed a payment. God has always provided for that. Out of her poverty, quote unquote, she saw the need. Do you see the need? I think He's called all of us to something here. Keep your eyes open. Even if it means giving out of our poverty. By the way, it's, it's great now that chapter 2 is finished and we begin chapter 3, they're back in the land. Well, that was quick. 900 miles and it's not even mentioned? Ezra doesn't mention a single thing about the journey. Know why? Because when you arrive, the journey is inconsequential. John and I were talking before, and I said, boy, I'm, I'm, just, I'm aching for you and Lisa a little bit because you dove right back into the adoption process, and I know what it was like being in the middle of that. I remember that. You know what he said? He said, well, yeah, but all I, I, I remember is once we had Monica come home, all the time and energy and effort that took to get her there didn't matter anymore because she was home. That's the attitude. And by the way, once we get there, none of this journey is going to matter. A whit to us, we will be with Jesus. Having a hard day today? Guess what? You're not even going to remember it throughout all eternity. Because you'll be home. You'll be with Him. Chapter 3. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And then Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to burn offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and that's wonderful. First things first. Alright, we're back in the land. We've got to do something. They're fearing all the surrounding people. And well, they should, because there was a lot of threat going on. But we've got to do something here. So they go to the Temple Mount, and they rebuild the altar. And they start the sacrifices. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. That was the first thing. And by the way, that's a great first consideration for us as well. Before we consider construction, we begin with sacrifice. Your life in Christ began with the sacrifice. And that's what the people do here. Yeshua and Zerubbabel, they set their hearts on the blood and they begin focusing on being clean and right before the Lord before they do anything else. And it's going on now morning and evening. And it will continue. Verse 4. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. That's also called Sukkah. 
sukkah, as is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons, and all the fixed festivals of the Lord, that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. So they haven't even laid a foundation, but they're offering. And they're back in motion and things are moving and they're celebrating the festivals and they're enjoying the new moons and they're offering all the offerings that are required. And it says, verse 7, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Zidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Jaffa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So all these preparations are taking place. Well, note this. First things first, they sacrificed. Second, they celebrated. Which is what you do once you've seen the sacrifice. Once you are covered by the blood of Christ and you have entered into this new life, now it is time to celebrate. The Lord's Supper Gang Communion is a celebration as much as a memorial of the sacrifice. It's a celebration. And I like this. It mentions specifically the Feast of Tabernacles, which starts Friday at 6 p.m. in Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles is going to be going starting Friday and running through next week. It's called Sukkah. Sukkah means tent. Victor Buxvazen in his, in his book, The Gospel and the Feast of Israel, wrote, He who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles does not know what rejoicing means. And the rabbis, they even call this festival, they just call it the holiday. Because it is such a blast. You know what they do? They put up tents. Literally. They, they, they pitch tabernacles. Right there, what they would do in the old days and they would still do it today they, they get as close to the temple or in today's terms the temple mount as they could they get within what's called a Sabbath day journey which is about a half a mile they get close to the temple and they take palm leaves and branches and leafy trees and willow branches and they bring all these leafy outdoor branches and they begin to construct these little lean-to tabernacles and they will live in those for a week all the while praising God and enjoying the feast and enjoying being there together as a people. And the reason they do it is to teach the children and to remind the adults of God's faithfulness. This is how we lived in the wilderness for 40 years and God protected us and God provided food for us and even the soles of our feet didn't wear out. Our shoes didn't wear out. Our clothes didn't wear out. God took care of us. And they recount this now every year at Sukkah, the Feast of Tabernacles, in Jerusalem today. And it's one of the first feasts mentioned as the people come back into the land. Why? Because they're reminded of God's faithfulness. This people could now say, as He provided for our forefathers in the wilderness, He provided for us to bring us out of Babylon. He kept His word. Seventy years and look, we're home. Amos chapter 9 verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, or tabernacle, and wall up its breaches, and I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. And it's talking about the last days when Jesus comes back and the temple is built. But there's more to it, gang. Zechariah 14.16 says, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths. This is a feast that we're going to celebrate in the Millennial Kingdom. So if you've never gotten a chance to experience Sukkot, you will. Every year it's going to happen. Well, why? Why would we celebrate Sukkot? We didn't come out of Egypt. We didn't come out of Babylon. No, our Jesus 
the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so for us, we have a totally different meaning for the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a feast for the One who tabernacled among us, who pitched His tent among us here on earth and saved us and brought us out of our spiritual Egypt, our spiritual Babylon, and into fellowship with Him. Now, check this out. If you'll flip quickly over to Haggai. I just like to try and say it right. Or it's close. I, I'm sure if, if we got some Jewish people in here, they'd be laughing their heads off, but we do our best. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year, I'll go ahead and read, you can catch up. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. Here he is, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. And to Yahshua, or Yeshua, same guy, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So here comes the prophet. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Consider your ways, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God, as He had sent them, and the people showed reverence for the Lord, and Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. I, just, I love how that book opens up. I mean, that chapter is wonderful because there's a great spiritual truth here. Historically, what's happening back in Ezra chapter 3 before, between verses 7 and 8, historically, as the people came back to the land, they saw the decimation of the temple, they gave generously, they set up the altar, they kept the festivals, but then they went and worked on their houses. They didn't rebuild the temple right away. And God says, what are you doing? And why do you think it's not working out so well for you? Why do you think you're still impoverished here back in the land? It's because you've left the spiritual aside. The same thing happens to us. We end up with purses with holes in them. Our, our production doesn't produce. We find our lives empty and, and, and dry and we're thirsty and we're hungry and, and we can't figure out why. And the Lord would say, well, have you been to temple lately? Have you been with me in worship? Have you been in my word? Have you been about the business of building the kingdom? See, that satisfies. And if you find yourself at that place in life where, man, I'm just doing the whole wheel spinning thing. 
Well, maybe you need to go back to what satisfies, back to the temple and rebuild. Be about the building of the kingdom. Well, that's what happened between verses 7 and 8. The people weren't doing it. So Haggai, the prophet, has to come to them and say, look, let's get busy. He lights a fire. So finally, after they sacrifice and after they celebrate, the third thing that happens when they come into the land, they lay the foundation. Watch this, verse 8. In the second year of the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua the son of Yotzadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And then Yeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Kadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and the brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Verse 10, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with, with trumpets, that would be literally with the shofars, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of King David of Israel. Yes, I know, so far, so good. And so they're blowing the trumpets, and a great noise is now coming up from this foundation that's been laid. I mean, they literally now can stand on the foundation of the temple. Verse 11, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good! His loving kindness is upon Israel forever! And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The temple isn't even built yet, and they're having a party. And we're on the way now. We're starting to build. Things are happening. This is good. And they praised and worshipped. Yet, verse 12... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. Why did the young men rejoice while the old men wept? You know what happens a lot? Even today, the old men weep because they remember the glory days. Oh, I remember America back in the 50s. We were a godly nation. We were a good, strong, happy people. And people went to church with their families on Sundays. And and kids prayed in the public schools. And I remember those days. And a lot of times, and I find myself doing it, you start to get older in life and you weep over the state of things. Because you're looking back. You remember. I remember how good it was as a child. And I look at the world my children are growing up in right now and I see the difference. And there are times I feel like weeping. On the other hand... Young people who haven't seen those old days, they're going, oh, come on, old people, get with it. This is, these are exciting times. I mean, Pastor, you're talking about Jesus coming. This is, I mean, this is the time to be alive, right? Forget your glory days. We're weeping and they're shouting for joy. We're weeping and they're shouting praises. And a loud noise comes up. More specifically, as they stood there on the Temple Mount, the old men, they remembered the glory of the Temple. They remembered what it looked like. The second Temple wasn't as big. Foundation was not as large. The glory just just wasn't the same. So the old men, they remembered that. They saw something that the young people didn't see. And it broke their hearts. 
But that's okay because the young people were looking forward and praising and lifting up. And together the sound goes up and it's so often like that. This chapter ends with a noisy mixture of weeping and celebration heard far away. Why is that? Go one more time to Haggai chapter 2. And you know what's great? We could just read all of chapter 2 and we could check Haggai off of our study through the Bible. We won't do that. But look at verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2. You've got to see this. This is what's going on right here. The word of the Lord. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? See, this is how we know that the weeping of the old men, it wasn't, they weren't weeping for joy. They were weeping out of sorrow. They looked back and God called it. Doesn't look like what you remember, does it? No, Lord, it doesn't. This is not the temple of the glory days. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Yeshua, the son of Yosadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made, which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. God draws them all the way back to Egypt. He says, hey, I'm still with you. I'm the same God. All that I've done, I'm still here. We're still going forward. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And by the way, he's referencing the tribulation. God of heaven is over all things. And he's even above and over all of time. And he's able to jump from Egypt to the tribulation in a verse. Verse 7. I will shake all the nations. You might want to circle the word all. David Wilkerson says America's in for a shaking. Is he right? We'll see. But I will shake all the nations, declares the Lord. And, verse 7, they will come, watch this, they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Should I tell him, Spencer? We read this verse. If you go to Israel, we will read this verse. Sitting on the Mount of Olives, you will look across at the Temple Mount, and you're going to see something. On the top of the Dome of the Rock Mosque is gold. It's a golden top. The top of the Al-Aqsa Mosque is silver. The gold is mine. And the silver is mine, declares the Lord. This is my Temple Mount. It does not belong to Allah, the God of Islam. It's mine. Verse 9 says, and this is absolutely amazing, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. How is that possible? Because honestly, when I look back historically, the Temple of Solomon was unsurpassed. Oh, I know Herod came along and he built up the second temple. He refurbished and remodeled and tried to make it something fantastic. But Jesus was not impressed. Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another. So how is it? How is this possible now? The old men are weeping at the insignificance of this place. It's not what it was. 
And God says, no, I'm going to make it greater than it was. The latter glory of this house will be far greater than the original glory. How is that so? I want to read verse 7 to you in the King James, and the translation is more accurate. I will shake all nations, and the desire, not the wealth, the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory. Who is the desire of all nations? Jesus Christ. Why is it that the second temple would be more amazing, more wonderful than the first? Because Jesus would enter the second temple. God would put on flesh and walk up the steps on the southern side into the temple. He would enter the temple Himself in person. The desire of all nations will come into this temple, the Lord declares. Gang, the feet of Jesus, any house into which Jesus walks, is filled with glory and filled with peace. And this is what the Lord promises these people, always encouraging them. Gang, remember this, especially if the Lord waits, if He tarries beyond this Christmas season, and we have the chance to sing that, that carol, Christ the highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, come desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly home. Love that song. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You for Your Word. God, You are amazing. We thank You, Lord, for the, the history we see in Ezra, the prophecy we hear from Daniel, the prophecy of Haggai, and these other men that You called and You brought forward to bring Your Word. Father, even in the midst of a destroyed temple, even in the midst of the old men despairing, You come and You bring encouragement. And we know, Father, no matter what happens, no matter how shaken the world in which we live becomes, we know our Jesus is coming. We know You are returning. We know first You're going to call us home. And then You are going to return to this world in glory. And that is the greatest encouragement we can imagine. Would you set that heart, that, that thought on our hearts, Father? Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly home. In Jesus' name, amen.